Talking to your kids about the dangers of vaping can be hard. Getting them to listen to hot gossip is easy. So here's some drama you could share with your kid. Dude, did you hear about Cassie and Jake? No, but did you hear that vaping can cause irreversible lung damage and nicotine affects brain development? <gasps> Nuh-uh. You don't need to gossip if you want to have an open conversation about vaping. So if you want to get tips on when and how to talk to your kids, visit talkaboutvaping.org. Brought to you by the American Lung Association and the Ad Council. Hey everybody, this is Hayes Carl, and you're listening to KPFT Houston. Welcome to another edition of the Progressive Forum. The Progressive Forum covers issues such as human rights, the environment, politics, and peace and justice, in addition to presenting news, commentary, and a weekly calendar of events. KPFT 90.1 Pacifica Radio, right here in Houston, Texas, and where you can hear us all around the world. Um, thank you for joining us this evening. My name again is Lillian Kerr. I'm joined by Wally James, and we have a wonderful volunteer, Basil, on the boards tonight. Thank you so much for keeping us technically um, up to date. So tonight we're going to start off with um, our regular segment, the Hightower Report. Then we will have the news for this week in Hidden History. Then I'll be talking to the author Felicia Cornblue about her book, A Woman's Life is a Human Life, My Mother, Our Neighbor, and the Journey from Reproductive Rights to Reproductive Justice. And this is just as we've uh, recognized the 61st anniversary of Roe v. Wade in January of um, 2024. Of course, you know that decision came down January 22nd, 1973. After that, we will have a, another uh, regular news segment from Larry Krizan. Then we will have a calendar of events and some special announcements for things coming up. And that will wrap our show, after which we will be followed by Jackie Batiste and People of the Earth. We hope you can stick around for that as well. So right now, we are going to the Hightower Report with Jim Hightower. It can be a deeply satisfying life. You're connected directly to nature. You are your own boss and you do work that's real, benefiting humanity. But then there are the pests, such as invasive bugs, monopolistic profiteers, and a new exceptionally destructive plague, billionaires. Yes, flocks of predatory ultra-billionaires wanting not just to gouge farmers, but to take away their farms. The crassest example of this land grab is happening now in Solano County, California, a bucolic agricultural area just north of San Francisco. A gaggle of narcissistic Silicon Valley tech titans with maximum bank accounts and minimal ethics has arrogantly and surreptitiously been spending nearly a billion dollars in an investment hustle to buy out and pay over every farm in the county. 
by a former Wall Street huckster, literally known as Golden Boy, the Titans pose as altruistic futurists, intending to turn this rural county into a magical technotronic haven of urban affluence and sophistication. Agriculture, they say, is the low-yield economy of yesterday, wasting valuable real estate on farming. So farmers must sell out and get out of the way, allowing these capitalist visionaries to grow a new megacity of the future. But not everyone in Solano was charmed, with many refusing to sell to Golden Boy. So, flush with self-entitlement, the Silicon Valley money lords are trying to muscle the uppity rural holdouts by suing them for, get this, refusing to sell their farms. The lawsuit is BS, of course, but it's meant to crush the farmers with legal fees. This is Jim Hightower saying, altruistic visionaries? One of the billionaires bluntly touted the syndicate's real motivation, gushing that the Solano land grab can be spectacularly profitable for investors. Howdy ho, folks, and thanks for tuning in to my Hightower Radio Commentaries. And guess what? There's even more Hightower waiting for you online. Subscribers to my Substack newsletter, Jim Hightower's Lowdown, get commentaries, articles, interviews with progressive sparklies, live events, historical nuggets, and more. Go to jimhightower.substack.com to sign up, and you'll get more. That's jimhightower.substack.com. And that was the weekly report from Jim Hightower. And now for this week in hidden history. February 2nd, 1848, the U.S. and Mexico signed the Treaty of Guadalupe, Hidalgo, ending the Mexican War and vastly increasing U.S. territory. January 28th, 1861, the first National Coal Miners Union, the American Miners Association, is founded. January 29, 1885, Congress rejects the Central American Canal Treaty with Nicaragua. February 3, 1912, vigilantes beat IAW work organizers for practicing free speech rights in San Diego, California. January 29, 1936, a sit-down strike begins at Akron, Ohio, rubber plant. On January 31st in 1950, President Harry Truman gives the order to develop the hydrogen bomb. On February 1st, 1960, civil rights sit-ins begin at lunch counters in Greensboro, North Carolina. On January 30th in 1968, North Vietnam launches the the Tet Offensive. On February 2nd, 2007, a panel of international scientists confirms that climate change is caused by humans. And that was This Week in Hidden History. This information comes from the calendar, The Hidden History of the United States. And that brings us to our guest tonight, the author Felicia Cornblue, who will talk to us about her latest book, A Woman's Life is a Human's Life. Felicia is um, a feminist, an author, and professor of history, and an an affiliated faculty member in gender, sexuality, and women's studies, and in Jewish studies at the University of Vermont. She's the author of The Battle for Welfare Rights and co-author of Ensuring Poverty. And Felicia is joining us tonight. Welcome to the Progressive Forum, Felicia Cornblue. Thank you for having me, and um, I'm so glad you're talking about this important issue. Well, thank you for writing about it, (laughs) and what a great book. I learned a lot. Um, Well, first of all, your mother. You come from some very important foremothers on this particular issue, Felicia. (laughs) Talk to us about Beatrice Cornblue and the role she played in this, this specific movement, Reproductive Freedom for Women in America. Yeah, so my mom was a lawyer, and she was of that generation when it was very extraordinary Mm -hmm. to be a woman lawyer. One way I think about it is that she went to law school before Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Wow. And this is in New York City, to be clear. This is all happening in New York, right? New York City, state of New York. She came from New York City. She actually didn't even go to college. Um, She didn't finish college before she went to law school. She was from a working-class family, immigrant Mm -hmm. family, she was raised by a single mom, and so she went to Brooklyn Law School, which is a private law school, but not a fancy one. Right. And, um, you know, and she 
started out, you know, doing any kind of job she could get, she wound up working for labor unions and then ultimately for the federal government, for the National Labor Relations Board, which um, has the job of certifying unions and allowing people to participate in unions. Right. And while she was doing that, yeah, yeah, while she was doing that, she also got involved in a movement to pull the Democratic Party to the left. Okay. Uh, to make the Democratic Party true to its original What uh, era was this? Was this the 50s, Felicia? 40s, 50s? Uh, late, 50s and yeah. late 50s into early 60s. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, they were, I found some documents of my mom's um, that revealed how skeptical they were about John F. Kennedy, because he was too conservative. Okay. So the American, Dem- the National Democratic Party thought John F. Kennedy was too conservative? No, 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 no. Oh. Just my mom, my mother's, oh. my mother's <laughs> faction. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. The more progressive left. Right, the more progressive left, or yes. the most more progressive Democrats. Certainly. Right? And they were, he was a, you know, he was a cold warrior, and, you know, they were very, very pro-labor, and he was not necessarily. Mm-hmm. So, and then fast forward a few years from, from being in those kinds of circles, my mother got exposed to feminism for the first time when the National Organization for Women organized. And I think nowadays that's a fairly mainstream organization. When it started, it was it was an organization of women in the professions mm-hmm. and women who worked for the federal government and women who were coming out of the union. And they were and organizing the back then, again, this was the late 50s, early 60s. NOW now was organizing around rights in the workplace for women what were, what were their, their issues yeah yeah those were their first right. demands um and there were people you know people who had risen to high levels of leadership in like the united auto workers union and the steel workers union and things like that right or who were in the you know, who like my mom were working for the federal government and they they were demanding e- equal opportunities for women um to go to college, to get professional degrees, um, to have authority in the public sphere, um, to run for office, right? All of those, all of those things that we think of as basic liberal rights. Um, but they also very quickly, when they started to talk about what women's civil rights were going to look mm-hmm. like, they very quickly started to talk about abortion. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. from their perspective, having abortion be legal and safe and accessible was one of those bottom line foundational things. Right. How could, right, how could a woman, and we're, they were speaking in terms of women, of course, mm-hmm. we would speak more broadly today, you know, but they would say, how could a woman have access to any of those other things? Mm-hmm. Political participation, economic participation, educational participation, right? If they couldn't control their reproduction. Right. So that's right. how they got to abortion. And you talk about, this is another thing that I wasn't aware of, to be honest. Um, your mother was part of a, an organization called the Professional Women's Caucus. Was yeah, this kind of was, a, the, the beginnings of the, her, her, because she got very active, and this is what the basis of your book, is the history of the movement in America for women uh, to get reproductive freedom or rights, reproductive rights. Yeah, so the Professional Women's Caucus was uh, kind of in parallel mm-hmm. to now. It was particularly a group for women who had who had, had the opportunity to get professional training. And actually, I found a membership list for that group that my mother kept in her papers. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg was on that wow. list from when she was a law professor before she became a judge. Um, and uh, they were all part of a coalition that was calling for initially a reform of the abortion laws and Mm -hmm. ultimately calling for a full repeal of all laws. They were in New York. So Mm -hmm. everything in New York state that controlled or regulated abortion, they wanted it all to just come right out of the legal code. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. my mother's particular role, the reason that I think that she actually did play an important role in history Mm -hmm. was that she was the one, she was the only attorney Mm -hmm. who was on the, the Committee on Abortion and Contraception of New York now. And so she sat down with, the, you know, these law books yeah. and went through and looked and sat you know, just to see every place where abortion was mentioned. Mm-hmm. And then she designed a piece of legislation that would effectively take abortion out and would leave it to be, you know, per, a strictly personal decision that somebody could make in consultation with their doctor or their 
partner or their clergy, you know, whoever they wanted to. Mm-hmm. But the government, out of it, completely out. Right. And, you know, they didn't win that. And, and certainly Roe versus Wade, you know, is, is not that. Roe versus Wade was not as radical as my mom's proposal. Um, but by demanding that, you know, it's this way. It's always this way, you yeah. know. In, in You've got to ask for more. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They put a marker in the sand. Mm-hmm. And from that point, they negotiated down. But even when they negotiated down, they still got the most liberal abortion law in the United States. Amazing. And that became, yeah, it became one of the foundations for Roe. Right, right. And and let's just also, to be clear, um, historically, prior to that, abortion was a criminal act. It was illegal. Yeah, it had become criminalized mm-hmm. in every state in the United States. In the early 19th century, mm-hmm. that was not true. Right. In the early 19th century, right, there were no... No, laws. nobody thought about it. It was just women got pregnant. Women, Some women wanted to terminate their pregnancies by whatever procedure that was available. Yeah, go to the midwife, yeah. take some herbs. Uh, you know, you know every culture has its... Even to this day, every culture has its own ways of... For women, you know, but then it's all gone underground, sadly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so part of all this at the beginning, the other woman that I thought was, um, stood out to me was, um, in reading your book, was Dr. Helen Rodriguez-Trias. And she gets involved in this issue as well. She's in New York at this time, but she's from Puerto Rico. Talk to us about how she gets involved. And I think her, the issue for her at the beginning was the forced sterilization of women, basically mainly women of color, women in Puerto Rico. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I started, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it in terms of my progress in the book. Yeah. Um, so I started writing about my mom and researching this campaign, this legal and legislative campaign that she was involved in. And at a certain point, I remembered that we had also had a next-door neighbor who was involved in these issues. And this was Dr. Rodriguez Trias. She was a pediatrician who had sort of divided her life between New York City and San Juan, Puerto Rico. And um, at the time we knew her, she was a very well-established feminist and doctor and a a really a leader in her field. But it turns out in the 1970s, she was one of the people who founded the first organization in the U.S. to take on this issue of sterilization, what they called sterilization abuse. And she was also very, very pro-choice in terms of abortion, mm-hmm. right? She, and she was, she was definitely sympathetic to the stuff that my, my mother and her allies were doing yeah. and, the, you know, and the effort that they did. But then after, after New York legalized abortion or mostly legalized it, and then after Roe versus Wade at the national level, um, Dr. Rodriguez-Trias and her group started to say, that's not enough, mm-hmm. right? Because they knew that in communities of color and working class communities, there were still so many people who were really being deprived of reproductive rights. Mm -hmm. But often they were deprived of reproductive rights in the sense that the government would say to them, you're not the kind of person who should be having children. So there were all these incentives for people to be kind of coerced or persuaded into having a sterilization procedure. And, you know, they found all these cases of social workers and doctors kind of threatening people will take away your welfare. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll take away your kids. Um, and they weren't really allowed to do any of those things, but they frightened people. And in some cases lied to them because they were a vulnerable and population. Absolutely. Yeah. Anybody who was, who was in the hospital, if they were in a public hospital or if they were, you know, getting their health care through Medicaid. Right. Right. And the doctor said, well, you know, if you come in here with another kid, you know, I'm not going to, I'm hmm. not going to, perform your labor and delivery. You're going to have to do it on your own, you know, because I don't think you should be having more children. They said that stuff like that to people, Mm -hmm. you know, or if you have an extra, if you have another child, you know, you're going to be cut off the welfare rolls. You got to think about that. And they wouldn't dream of saying that to a privileged white family. No, it was, I mean, it was the opposite. Yeah. In fact, what they would say to white middle-class women is have more children. Right, have <laughs> please have more children. Yes. You cannot get an abortion. You cannot Jeez. get birth control, and you certainly cannot have a sterilization procedure if you're a white, you know, wealthy wow. white married person. Yeah, yeah. So, what they revealed was 
But it was almost like, you know, where healthcare was concerned and where reproduction was concerned, it was like we were living in two Americas. Wow. We certainly were. And yeah, and 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 to be honest, there were a lot of white middle class feminists who didn't want to hear it and sort of mm-hmm. couldn't hear it. And so the paradox in the book is, you know, we have Helen and my mom yeah. and these two movements that they're part of, in some ways working together, they're all fighting for reproductive rights, reproductive freedom. But then you see that some of the majority white feminist organizations actually oppose what um, Dr. Rodriguez Trias and her allies are trying to do because it's not happening to them. Yeah. Right? And they don't they don't see the need for it. And they actually think that it would be a de- it would be a problem to uh- and do, new procedures. Do you t- you talk about this when your mother's putting together some this this la- that she introduces a bill actually to repeal the um, criminality of abortion, right? Yes, that that was that was the work that she did. Right, right. Um, she she which was amazing. She literally, dra- she literally drafted the bill, which then was introduced by to decriminalize uh, abortion. Yep. Yep. Yep, 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 which would have fully decriminalized abortion. And just to think about that, so today in America, there are four states that have done that, but only four, Yeah. right? And at the time that my mom was proposing it, there wasn't a single jurisdiction probably in the world. I'm wow. pretty sure there was no jurisdiction in right. the world no, no. That, had done, that had done such a thing. Certainly nobody in the United States, right? So it was what, it was what inspired inspired a mass movement yes. around abortion. You know, before that, people had been calling for reforms, and they said, you know, these laws don't work, and they had a variety of sort of moderate positions. But once there was a bill that was actually saying, we want, a, we want full repeal because we trust people to make their own choices and to know what's best for them and their families, right. then suddenly that was the galvanizing thing, and you see hundreds of thousands of people. And the other thing I learned from your book, Felicia, was that we there um, there was some sympathetic men in Congress in New York. I'm thinking of Doc, uh, of Percy Sutton. hadn't come across that name before, and he's a, a congressman from Harlem. Talk talk yep. to us about what he was doing, and he actually introduced some bills in the, at the New York State Legislature level. Yeah, um, I think this is less true nationally, but you can really see it in the state yeah. at the state level. You know that there were there were kind of surprising coalitions that made this thing happen. So, what was happening inside the Democratic Party is that um, there were there were mostly two groups. Well, in, at least in New York, there were two groups that were really pulling for change, and they tended to be Black New Yorkers and Jewish New Yorkers. Okay, <laughs> and some and some some white Protestants, but mostly it was Blacks and Jews in the Democratic Party. Was and, and so, that was the more progressive wing, you think? They were the more progressive. Yeah, yeah. Um, they were um, they were inspired by the New Deal of Franklin yeah. Roosevelt, and actually Eleanor Roosevelt was sort of their leader. Okay, she had moved to New York, and she was like, you know, she was organizing the the left liberals and the Democratic Party. Okay, and so Percy Sutton, who was representing ha- um, Harlem, uh, a black assemblyman who later became the. Uh, the head of the borough of Manhattan mm-hmm. um, and then became a very important Harlem businessman and, you know, had a very long distinguished career. He was the first person ever to introduce a law that would have reformed abortion in the state of New York. Wow. And, you know, it, and it was, and for him, I don't know if he would have called himself a feminist, but for him, it was about speaking to the reality on the ground Yeah, for, you know, for for black and other people of color in New York, because he knew that people were dying. Yeah, there were other you know, either through self induced or going to, you know, these these back alley abortionists, so to speak, right? Yeah, yeah. People were going to all kinds yeah. of dodgy, you know, having all kinds of dodgy yeah. procedures. I, I I interviewed somebody who and and were dying by yeah. Mm-hmm. They interviewed somebody whose abortion was provided by like a dermatologist who didn't know what he was doing. No. And she wound up in the. They used to have the, They used to have um, wards in the hospital that they would call the abortion ward because so many women came in with sepsis. You know, they were infected, 
because they had had bad yeah. procedures. So he knew that that was happening. It was happening to black women and Puerto Rican women way more than it was happening to white women. And it was happening to poor women and young women way more than it was happening right. to older women and wealthy women. Right. right. So that was, that was what he was reflecting, the needs of his community. And then after, after him, then there was, um, he, you know, he, he moved on to higher office. Mm-hmm. And then there was a succession of both, both men and women, Democrats and Republicans, who worked to move the ball on this issue. And one of the things that I think is really important to remember that I learned in doing the book is that it was not such a, a polarized thing right, right. in this period, you know? There were lots of Republicans who were leaders on this issue. Well, and especially the more it, on the libertarian side, you know, it was more like government hands off. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and, and the whole issue of, of birth control had been very bipartisan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes for not great reasons, maybe people, <laughs> some people were like, well, we don't, you know, we don't want those folks to have kids. But, um, but still, there was still a, a bipartisan a push toward. Yeah, you know, it was bipartisan. There was yeah. a push to to make things accessible and affordable, um, and and safe. And so the and safe exactly. Mm-hmm. So the so the pro abortion rights coalition was a very broad one, right? And they were able to to shift what had seemed like an impossible law. Like it, in when they started in 1965. They didn't know what the, they were ever going to be able to do. They thought maybe they needed a, a United States constitutional amendment or an amendment to the state constitution. You know, they, they couldn't imagine that through regular political means, you know, through lobbying and demonstrating, that they would really be able to win. Um, and yet they in New York, they were able to win within five years. Wow. You know, first bill in 65 and and the the last one is in 1970. Yeah. And then, of course, Roe versus Wade three years later. Yeah. Talk. So this this is a good introduction to, to the, the, the this chapter in your book, um, the delegation. This is the changing the law and the New York uh, Constitutional Convention of 1967. And this is a, f- a familiar name enters um enters the this this part of the history is Betty Friedan and she is marching outside the state capitol during this um, convention of 1967 because her and um, black labor leader and feminist Dolly Lowther Robinson were very active also in this movement this reproductive rights this access to uh, to, to decriminalizing abortion, as you're talking about. Talk to us about that, because this is kind of where this is, things are beginning to kind of coalesce, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, Friedan, I almost called her Betty, because I feel like I know her. <laughs> I've, read, I've read a lot about her. She's a very strange, very interesting person. Yeah. So, she was a New Yorker, and she was, she's a, she was the national president of the National Organization for Women, the first one. Uh, but she also was a New Yorker, and she was involved in these New York politics. And what what they did was they, they really didn't know how they were ever going to make progress on this issue. So one of the things they tried was to participate in a process of rewriting the state constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so interesting, right, because this is happening now. People are using state constitutions, and they're, us- they're even using new language that they're adding to state constitutions in order to protect... Uh, abortion rights mm-hmm. or undo some abortion like this, ban. This personhood movement, granting personhood to fetuses. We, we've seen a lot of that. Well, we have seen a lot of that, but I was I, I was really thinking about the pro-abortion rights yes, side. Yes, yes, exactly. You know, right in Can- in Kansas and Ohio, as a, as a as a as a rebuttal or an answer to yes. this 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 erosion of our rights to to re- to abortion. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. You've seen people. Um, people use the kinds of tools that haven't been used for mm-hmm, 50 or mm-hmm. 60 years, right? And so this was a tool that the movement, you know, inventively, I think, creatively thought mm-hmm. they could use. Mm-hmm. You know, there was going to be a process of, of amending and rewriting the state constitution. So they said, okay, well, we want to rewrite the state constitution so that it specifically protects women's rights. Mm-hmm. They wanted to have something like an ERA in the state constitution, and they wanted to define the right to access abortion as part of women's rights, as part of women's civil rights. Right. 
So they didn't win at that, but it was one and part of part of what I what I like to remember, and I think it's important for us to remember, is how kind of inventive and creative and hardworking they were. Like if one tool didn't work, they tried another. Right. If one door wasn't open, they they tried another. If one collaboration, right, wasn't really enough, then they expanded, you know, opened up, up the table and invited more people to the table. So this is one of those strategies they used. And you can see how, you know, they're using the Democratic Party and the legislative process and they're using the labor movement and mm-hmm. people who have who are veteran labor leaders and this rising feminist movement. And it all is leading to greater progress, even though they don't win in the short run. It all moves the ball down the field. Yeah. Fascinating. Now, bef- uh, the other piece of your book that I learned about was astounding to me was the clergy consultation service. This, yes. what I mean, 50, 60 years ago, churches, coalitions of different faiths came together to protect women's health. Which yeah, they were they were amazing. Yeah, tell us about this. This, I mean, I didn't know this. I haven't heard about this, and it was. I went, oh my god, why can't this happen now? Uh, that's a good question. Yeah. So I think some people some people have heard about this group, Jane, out of yes, Chicago. Yes, heard about them, right? So the, there were a couple of movies about them, right? Yes. So Jane was very important, um, and I don't mean to you know, deny that in any way. They were a real feminist organization. But the Clergy Consultation Service, which had a headquarters in New York, but which operated all over the country, the Clergy Consultation Service was just vastly bigger. And it helped a huge number of people, way more than Jane ever did or any other similar service. They helped a huge, huge number of people find... Because it was word of mouth. People heard about it through their churches and through their neighbors. It was amazing. So yep. talk and to us were, about the history probably, of this. Yeah, they were probably breaking the law, but they always insisted that they were not breaking the law. And they were in kind of a legal gray zone. So they would help. It was, it was all staffed by clergy members. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were, there were non-clergy. It's just a, <laughs> anybody who's part of, a, part of a religious organization knows that there's always somebody behind the clergy person who's yes. doing all the... You the know, one who does the, the flowers, the, the one who does the going. organ, the one who does all the exactly. casseroles and the teas. <laughs> right. All the vol- so there was a lot of volunteer yes. work involved. But um, but the counseling was done by individual clergy people who would talk to people about their situation. And if the person, you know, really felt like they wanted or needed an abortion, then the clergy person would give them a name. Mm-hmm. And it was always somebody in a different state. Mm-hmm. So they okay. could say that they weren't breaking the law of their own state. Um, okay. They were sending somebody, you know, somebody in New York, would, they would send somebody to a skilled uh, abortion provider in New Jersey right. or something. And they knew that they were skilled because actually there, there was one woman in New York, and I'm sure there were others elsewhere who went around and sort of pretended to be seeking an abortion, and she would check out all the practitioners mm-hmm. and see, you know, is their facility clean? Do they have, you know, are they using appropriate antiseptic techniques? Like a mystery shopper. Doubt- <laughs> exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, you know, uh, are they going to treat women with respect mm-hmm, when they come mm-hmm. in? So they actually, they actually vetted everybody. And they knew That's that good. they were they were what they were offering people was safe, possibly mainly. possibly illegal, but it was exactly, safe. but it was it was safe, and they right. served thousands and thousands of people. And then fast forward after the law changed in New York, they actually set up it was the clergy service itself that set up the first freestanding abortion clinic in the United States. Wow, they just shifted. Is that still there, Felicia? No, 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 they, um, unfortunately, <laughs> this is part of the history too. Like, uh, unfortunately they, they hired somebody to be their medical director who was, um, he was experienced because he had been breaking the law for many years, <laughs> providing abortions. So he was a very experienced abortion provider, but he forgot to tell them that he had lost his medical license. Uh-oh. He got caught providing abortions. <laughs> so Uh-oh. Mine a lot of with the law. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. They had a lot of trouble with the law, and they had some financial trouble. Um, but they established a kind of model of practice, mm-hmm. a humane and respectful way to provide medical care for people who were, who were coming in for abortion procedures. And that, even though their, their clinic didn't last, mm-hmm. that way of providing this particular type of health care that has lasted. Right, right. And it was very important. And you talk about, you touched on this earlier. So these, these um, ministers or rabbis, what, whatever the faith was, knew that they were, if not breaking the law, skirting up, coming very close to breaking the law. But there were some, you mentioned two, two men, uh, Rabbi Tickton in Chicago and Reverend Robert Hare of Cleveland, who actually knew they were breaking the law. They were arrested along with the people that were providing the abortions, and they were sort of knew what they would... Can you talk to us about these two cases? Yeah. Um, I'm so glad you brought you brought them up. I want to... I would love to, to lift up, as we say these yes. days, um, the names of people who took extraordinary risks. So really, everybody who was involved in this knew that they could be arrested. Right. Right? Even though... Even though they had lawyers from the ACLU who were working with them and who said, you know, this is the way to be to be as safe as possible, mm-hmm. they knew that they could get in trouble with the law. And these two particular people did. Um, this one rabbi who um, was a semi-famous liberal rabbi, and he was still being prosecuted at the time of Roe versus Wade. And if it wasn't for Roe versus Wade, I don't know what have what would have happened. And the same was true for Reverend Hare. Mm-hmm. Um, he had he had helped someone find an abortion and then that patient um, got caught in a in a sting in a police raid on the abortionist mm-hmm. and the police pressured Name names. her to name names exactly. Mm-hmm. So she named she not only named her doctor, but she also named the reverend. this reverend who had mm-hmm. given her the name of the doctor. Right. And you know he too was prepared to go to jail if yeah. need be. There also there was a doctor in Canada um, who did go to jail. He went to jail for eighteen months because he was providing abortions, and he just you know he refused to stop. He said it's an inhumane law, yeah. and I just won't follow it. Where are those people of faith now? Well, I think I think they must be out are, there. Yeah, some people are mobilizing. Yeah. I don't know, and you know, I for myself, most of the time, I'm not willing to go to jail. So yeah, most you know, of I, us I, are not. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not. I, I you know, it's, it's not any of my business to. Um, to be judgmental of somebody else who's not willing to go to jail. But I, but I do wonder sometimes why, you know, why the climate is different today. Mm-hmm. And most of us are not willing to take that level of risk. Like, I don't know, if abortion was illegal in my state, would we set up an abortion clinic at my synagogue? I think we I probably don't. wouldn't. We, would, yeah. we, we might do some things. We might, like, you know, get petition signatures and, you know, try and um, advocate for certain people to um, be elected to office. Right. But I don't know whether we would take the kinds of risks that some of these people were willing to take. I know. And, you know, maybe that's worth thinking about. Like what, if we really believe in something, what are we willing to do? Well, I mean, and we have to, as you say, lift these people up because, and, and, and every, every struggle for human rights is, is, sh- points up these people and and we're grateful to them because they do lay lay themselves on the line and they do go to jail um some even you know die but um this it was just in such stark contrast that this this clergy consult consulting service that you talk about in it's so weird to sort of read about it now because we're in such a different climate now yeah, I, I also really wanted to remind people that in the United States, when we talk about the religious view yeah. on reproductive rights, like w- we think we know what that is, and we think it's this this hard right conservative view, and these are people who are asserting their religious view on reproductive rights, right. and their religious view was right that it is immoral 
to deprive people of the health care they need. Mm-hmm. And it's immoral to make decisions for somebody instead of letting them make the decision for themselves. And it was almost like, for the clergy people, it was almost like part of their part of their pastoral duty, yeah, part yeah. of their duty, right? As somebody who was, who was advising people and... Um, well, it's like if somebody had cancer pain. or needed lost rights as part of their, their, as you say, their pastoral care. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's, Where is that's, that going? So that's what they tried. That's what they tried to do. And I think, I think we have a, maybe um, an echo of that, mm-hmm. you know, a kind of quiet echo of that in some religious, some liberal religious communities today. Yeah. But we could, you know, we could see a lot more. I think we could see a lot more. Well, do you, so, so do you think that, I mean, I love the fact that your book lays out the history of the people that do all this from your mother to these people of faith in, uh, that form this, this um, sort of loose network in New York to help women. Th- this is what your book is laying out, which I, which I found so moving that, and, and inspiring because we're still doing it. I have to believe we're still doing it. Yes. So that, I guess that would, that would be one of the things I would want people to take away. You know, not that, um, oh, people were so great back then and we're, (laughs) they're not great. (laughs) But instead to think about, to think about some of the parallels. Like since Roe vs. Wade was overturned in 2022, um, there has been an incredible outpouring of activism. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and every single bit of it makes a difference. Yep. You know, history tells us that even if in the short term you think you're not getting anywhere, you think, you know, there's no way to push the rock up the hill, right? Every act, whether, whether it's signing petitions for somebody or demonstrating or going to jail mm-hmm. um, or providing help for somebody who needs to find a safe practitioner or needs to get to another state, like every single act makes a difference. Right. And you right, and makes, um, and makes the world better. Exactly. And so you know, so I, I don't want, I don't want to diss the activism that has happened since oh, Roe no. was overturned. You know, I think sometimes we could maybe be more militant, and maybe <laughs> that spirit will be coming back too. You know, we'll see. Um, but certainly, I mean, some of the victories that people have won have been astounding. They victories. have. They have, and all from grassroots. Uh, as, Absolutely. As, as you were talking about these 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 states that have passed amendments to their own constitutions, making sure that women's reproductive rights are guaranteed. Yeah, it's, Kudos um, to it's these extraordinary. And, yeah. and maybe, you know, maybe we needed those things all along. Yeah. But people really understand that we need them today. Yeah, we certainly do. Felicia, thank you so much for joining us here on the Progressive Forum. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. I want to just remind our listeners that I've been talking to Felicia Cornblue. Her book is titled, A Woman's Life is a Human Life, My Mother, Our Neighbor, and the Journey from Reproductive Rights to Reproductive Justice. Once again, thank you to Felicia Cornblue for joining us here on the Progressive Forum. This is the news on the Progressive Forum. I'm Larry Cruzan. The Secretary General of the United Nations, Mr. Antonio Guterres, has called for the renewal of funds for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine refugees. This comes in the midst of a smear campaign against the UN agency driven by the Zionist State of Israel. The Israeli Zionist entity launched a smear campaign against the UN agency after accusing local employees of UNRWA of participating in the October 7 incursion by the Palestinian resistance in Gaza. Hamas has rejected the involvement of UNRWA personnel in the Hamas resistance attack on the illegal Israeli occupation. United Kingdom, Germany, Italy, Netherlands, Switzerland, and Finland on Saturday also joined the United States, Australia, and Canada in pausing funding to the Palestinian Aid Agency. Antonio Guterres urged these countries not to suspend funding for the agency, saying that the desperate needs of the Palestinian refugees must be met. Guterres pointed out that two million Palestinian civilians in Gaza depend on the UN Relief and Works Agency 
for critical aid for their daily survival. He said the current funding of the agency will not allow it to meet all the requirements to support the Gazan people in this coming February. Critics of the Israeli entity's unproven accusations against UNRWA say they are disgusted that decisions to hold UNRWA's funding are taken based on alleged behavior of a few individuals. They point out the continued hypocrisy of denying Palestinians basic human survival needs as the illegal Israeli-United States war on Gaza continues. Palestinian needs are deepening and famine is looming in the future. Monday, Amnesty International joined the growing global criticism denouncing Israel's allies for suspending aid to the United Nations Palestinian Refugee Agency. Agnes Kalamar is Amnesty's Secretary General and the former United Nations Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Killings. She stated that the alleged actions of a few individuals must not be used as a pretext for cutting off life-saving assistance and what could amount to collective punishment. Ms. Calamard continued, saying, Some of these very governments that announce they will cut off funds to UNRWA over these allegations have, in the meantime, continued to arm Israeli forces, despite overwhelming evidence that these arms are used to commit war crimes and serious human rights violations. She said, Instead of suspending vital funding to those in need, States should be working to halt arms transfers to Israel and Palestinian armed groups and pushing for an immediate and sustained ceasefire and full humanitarian access to help alleviate devastating suffering. This capricious decision to suspend funding came just hours after the International Court of Justice ruled that Israel must ensure the provision of humanitarian aid to Palestinians in Gaza. Israel has murdered tens of thousands and wounded even more in less than four months of wanton Zionist genocide against the Palestinians in Gaza. Ms. Francesca Albanese is the UN Special Rapporteur for the Occupied Palestinian Territories. She stated that defunding UNRWA at this critical time overtly defies the International Court of Justice ruling. Doctors Without Borders similarly warned that the consequences these cuts in funding will have on the ground contradict the provisional measures issued by the International Court of Justice. In typical cruel hypocrisy, one week before President Biden decided to suspend its UNRWA contributions, a spokesman for the U.S. State Department described the United Nations Agency of UNRWA its work as invaluable and life-saving. Several major nations who have some humanity including Norway and Spain, have refused to join the unfounded U.S. suspension of aid to the United Nations Relief Works Administration. On Monday, Spanish Foreign Minister José Manuel Abares said Spain will not suspend UNRWA funding, funding which he said helps alleviate the terrible humanitarian situation in Gaza. Minister Abares pledged to continue pushing for an end to Israel's assault on Gaza, the release of hostages, and a lasting diplomatic solution. The Israeli Zionist government has been targeting UNRWA for years and is hoping to push the agency out of Gaza entirely. The Israeli Zionist program wants exactly for the Palestinians to have no means of life support so that the Zionist project can pressure the Palestinians to leave their native land. In the United States, the Internal Revenue Service announced continued progress to expand enforcement efforts related to high-income individuals, large corporations, and complex partnerships as part of wider efforts to transform the agency. The IRS says it collected $482 million from wealthy tax cheaters last year in a continuing effort to step up tax crime enforcement. The Internal Revenue Service says it will continue to audit large corporations, high-income individuals, and complex partnerships who are not paying their due fair share of U.S. taxes. The agency says it pursued 1,600 millionaires to recoup the overdue tax payments and will not stop now. IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel, referring to previous lax White House administrations, stated, 
The IRS continues to increase scrutiny on high-income taxpayers as we work to reverse the historic low audit rates that the wealthiest individuals and organizations faced. We are adding staff and technology to ensure that the taxpayers with the highest income, including partnerships, large corporations, and millionaires and billionaires, pay what is legally owed under federal law. The Inflation Reduction Act, passed in 2022 by the Biden administration and Congress, provided the additional money that paid for more IRS agents to do these audits on the wealthiest tax defrauders. Prior to the Inflation Reduction Act, more than a decade of budget cuts prevented the IRS from keeping pace with the increasingly complicated set of tools that the wealthiest taxpayers use to hide their income and evade paying their taxes. The IRS is now taking swift and aggressive action to close this gap by hiring extra top talent to pursue high-income individuals, complex partnerships, and large corporations. These are key positions to increase the pursuit of high-wealth individuals, those complex partnerships and large corporations that are not paying the taxes they owe. The IRS commissioner said that the IRS is also focusing on improving taxpayer service for hard-working taxpayers, offering taxpayers more in-person and online resources as part of the effort to deliver another successful tax season this year. The additional resources the IRS has received is making a difference for taxpayers, which includes modernizing their technology. The IRS is modernizing decades-old technology to drive the agency's efforts to provide world-class customer service and to protect taxpayers' data. And in our final story, the last several years have seen significant momentum towards the goal of making public, people-owned banks a reality in many parts of the United States. This is especially true in the state of California. In 2019, the governor there signed a bill allowing counties and municipalities to establish public banks. In 2021, California Governor Newsom signed a bill that appropriates funds for a state commission to analyze the prospects and feasibility to establish a state bank that would also function as a commercial bank to provide personal financial services for residents of California. The last few decades have seen an explosion of commercial investment banks which have become so big that only a few banks now control America's investment capital. These corporate bank systems became dominant by taking over smaller community and regional banks. Community and regional banks historically were the main source of capital for middle and low-income borrowers. By redlining low-income neighborhoods and minority communities, these large banks put their investment capital into high-income projects that were much more profitable than lending to middle- and low-income borrowers. In response to the destructive forces unleashed by predatory investment capitalism, activists and progressive political leaders around the world have begun the movement to establish public financial institutions. Public financial institutions are a form of democratic finance accountable to people and not to vulture investment capitalists seeking to maximize profits at the expense of the poor. The state of North Dakota already has a public bank, the Bank of North Dakota. The bank has been in existence for more than 100 years, providing loans and financial credit to farmers, small businesses, and community organizations. And that's been some of the news on the Progressive Forum. I could sing a song for every bomb that flies. I'd sing each and all the days. There were to be a verse for every dying child's cries, for every helpless father's gaze. If I could write a love letter to each corpse as it's carried, I'd never still my if I had to stop a moment for each one as it's buried, I'd never move again. And 
the stocks are going up somewhere in America. But I'll sing a song for Gaza. For every home that bombs destroy, if I could shed a tear, they would never stop flying. If each broken brick were a heart of a little girl, was music um, we were listening to um, from David Rovix. We have a couple of announcements we'd like to share with our listeners right now. This Saturday, February the 3rd, from 2 to 4 p.m., there will be um, a memorial service, celebration of life for Dave and Peggy Atwood. Um, both were members, longtime members of the Houston Peace and Justice Center. And the Houston Peace and Justice Center has organized this uh, Celebration of Life event. Dave and Peggy were familiar to many of our listeners. They were an inspiration to us in their dedication and persistence in making the world a more peaceful and just place in many different ways. So if you are free, that's this uh, Saturday, February the 3rd from 2 to 4 p.m. Please gather at the Houston Mennonite Church located at 1231 Wirt Road, Houston, Texas, 77077. There will be cards available to share memories with family and online with friends. If you need more information, please contact Houston Peace and Justice Center, which is at houstonhpjc.org. And then our second announcement is a march that is taking place in Austin this Sunday, February the 4th. It's a Texas Against Genocide in, Pal- in Palestine, a rally and march in Austin, Texas. It begins at 1 o'clock at the Texas State Capitol. And that information comes from deceleration. So if you need for more information about that, um, feel free to contact us here at the station. But basically, gather at the Texas State Capitol this Sunday, February the 4th at 1 p.m. That gives you time if you're traveling from Houston. Um, anyway, those are our anna- calendar announcements for this evening. And that wraps it up for us, Wally, myself, and Basil on the technical side. Thank you so much. This is Lillian Kerr at the Progressive Forum. We'll see you next week. The next show is coming up is Jackie with People of the Earth. mother was always very active and independent and she was familiar with her neighborhood but one day she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual she wasn't even really sure where she was at it's important for you to talk to someone about it i felt so much better after my son told me mom will figure it out when something feels different it could be alzheimer's now is the time to talk visit alz.org our stories to learn more a message from the alzheimer's association and the ad council Here's that song again. Here's that song again. For the hundredth time today. Here's that song again. It's gonna be stuck in your head all day. Here's that song again. It will make you cray cray. You love your kids enough to watch that TV show a bajillion times. Love them enough to make sure they're in the right car seat for their age and size. Show them you love them. Keep them safe. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Hello, my name is Marcus and I'm one of the hosts of the new program, The Great Wide Open, which airs Monday through Friday from 9.30 a.m. to 12 noon. I'd like to take just a minute of your time 
to share a few listener testimonials with you that were part of a call-in segment on our show recently. This is George from Bryan, Texas, and he would like to say a little something about 